Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. The scene between the Roman Republic and the Roman Empire is often presented as a clean one at the assassination of Julius Caesar, and the life of Caesar Augustus sometimes categorized as a largely stable and serene one, notable mainly for the distinct lack of upheaval that would mar the future emperors. But the transition from Republic to Empire was anything but smooth. For more than a decade after the death of Julius Caesar, Romans were put through a series of civil wars that threatened to tear Rome apart, almost all of which featured two men, Mark Antony, Caesar's former co-consul, and as historians would call him during this period, Octavian, the future Caesar Augustus. These wars would define the new empire and would ultimately define its first emperor. Let's begin. I'm here on HI101 with Dan McGinnis. Hello. And we're going to talk about uh, the fall of the Roman Republic a little bit. Uh, very obscure topic. But... A very obscure topic. By the way, I'm very happy to have you back on the show. It's been a while, and I'm very excited to have I you I am here. very excited to be back. Excellent. When we were trying to figure out what we were going to do, the assassination of Julius Caesar is always like a good time. It's also so overdone that it gets just kind of... I don't want to say boring. It's a very exciting story, but... Yeah, but I mean, even hacks have written plays about it. <laughs> so... That's that's true. That's true. No, it's 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 uh, it's well-trod. And it's, you know, I, I feel like people have a very good sense of the lead-up to that. But it's strange how many stories kind of end with, and then they stab Caesar to death, and now it's a Roman Republic. The end. And, and every time I hear that version of it, it's kind of like, wait, hold up. Well, and I think it's interesting because there's a lot of political intrigue, but the larger society level changes that happened in the time after are a, a much bigger deal. Yeah, yeah. In, in a lot of ways. I mean, not to discount Julius Caesar as a an incredible military leader, political leader, just one man tour de force in late Roman Republic. I mean... Anyone who's calling Julius Caesar the first emperor is just straight up wrong. Um, I'm sure there's people who might have some words to say to me over that, but I I don't feel like that's a very strongly defensible uh, uh, position. Julius Caesar dying didn't end the Republic. What, What ended the Republic is what came afterwards. And so much of that is tied up in this relationship between two men, uh, Mark Antony and uh, Octavius or Octavian or Caesar Augustus, depending on 
when we are in his life. And and I'd really like to talk a little bit more about that because the intention behind killing Caesar was never to kickstart this cool new empire. It was done by a bunch of men who were trying to re- preserve this old republic. And, and I think that's the point where a lot of these uh, takes on the life of Julius Caesar kind of fall apart a little bit. Hmm. That being said, I don't think we can really talk about Octavian and Mark Antony in any clear way without at least talking a little bit about Julius Caesar and why why Julius Caesar, I guess, was how I was about to rephrase that <laughs> sentence. Well, context is always helpful. Mm-hmm. And I guess the, the, the main comment I would have to make is that the final century of the Roman Republic was incredibly tumultuous. It's not as though Caesar walked into this like well-oiled machine and just threw a wrench in the gears. It 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 didn't just happen out of nowhere. It was it was a century full of social and political and economic and military crisis that was basically ongoing from before the time that Caesar was born, uh, right up until um, well, really until Augustus solidified his uh, his political power clarifying note right now i'm going to stick to calling him octavian i think for the duration of the show okay octavian is actually not even really a name he would have used for himself at all during his life possibly some of his contemporaries would have but there's kind of three distinct periods of his life where you know when he was a child he would have gone by octavius and uh when he was finally adopted by Julius Caesar, his name would have changed. When you're when you're adopted in in the Roman tra- tradition, your your old uh, name, your family name, uh, Octavius in this case, becomes uh, a cognomen, which is really common in in uh, in Roman names, and it changes form from Octavius to Octavianus, um, which is where we get Octavian. And he wasn't awarded the title of Augustus until much further into his political career. So Octavian is used uh, fairly commonly by historians to denote this in-between uh, period of his life where Julius Caesar was gone, um, and Octavian himself was actually calling him Julius Caesar, calling himself Julius Caesar, um, but he hadn't yet become Caesar Augustus. So um, just for clarity's sake, we're going to use Octavian okay. as much as possible and as much as I can remember not to use any of the other ones man roman naming roman naming gets weird man yeah like so the idea is like if if julius caesar had been adopted into another uh uh, family he would have gone by julianus rather than rather than julius um but yeah that's that's the whole naming thing but back to uh republican rome there's there's just too much to get into really but it's it's this like complex milieu of of like a lot of things that actually would would actually sound really familiar today like gaps between the uh, the wealthy and the poor um maybe not quite so much the slavery issues that were going on but certainly the class issues that were uh running into major problems at that point in time political dis- disillusionment and lack of engagement with the public racial tensions were at an all-time high there was this uh question of how to incorporate the indigenous uh italian population into the wider roman society like there's there's a lot of stuff that it's no wonder people look at republican rome and go hey this this looks a lot like us today this feels kind of like the prohibition uh episode with colin oliver yeah oh that's not yeah where we definitely weren't talking about the modern conversation around marijuana at all yeah 
um yeah no i i know i know exactly what you mean and and there's there's constantly books coming out about this subject like hey if if america was rome where would we be on the it's, it's not how history and works then a but strong it's... executive leader emerged and took control <laughs> no comment um it's 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 very understandable why that question is so intriguing for people though in the 80s bce there was this massive clash between these two kind of political titans uh gaius marius and uh lucius cornelius sulla and it had you know it had led to civil wars that raged for a number of years and and really the main issue there without getting too deep into it was that rome got to a point where armies were kind of more loyal to their uh, commanding officers than they were necessarily to the republic as a whole and so what you get is these sort of uh roving warlords who have control of their own legions rather than sort of a, a political but separate body that is is answerable to the government of that society so would they be competing uh, out in the field against uh, outsiders to the to the society or were they actually fighting each other i mean they're they're their purpose is to defend the the Roman Republic, but during these civil wars, they're they're actually fighting each other. So, uh, Marius's troops and Sulla's troops would have been fighting against each other, which was, I mean, it's it's certainly not unheard of, but like the idea of it happening made people incredibly uncomfortable from sort of a, a social mores standpoint. Like this isn't what Romans are supposed to do. This isn't how Romans are supposed to be. That kind of thing, and it it really seemed like there were a lot of cracks forming in the government and in society when all of this was going on. And Julius Caesar, who was born um, in the year 100 BCE, grew up in all of this, right? He was, a, he was a very young man when these civil wars were happening. We gotta be careful in this whole topic because we're using uh, BCE years rather than uh, CE, so we kind of count backwards. It gets very confusing. Long story short, Sulla's troops end up winning this, uh, this civil war and the Julii, Caesar's family, had been uh, Marius supporters. And that was kind of a problem for Caesar because Sulla was incredibly brutal. I mean, when he won this war, he put into place something known as uh, proscriptions, which were basically these lists of people who were enemies of the state. And basically, they were essentially hit lists or even like bounty lists. Like if you turn this person in, you could get a reward or you could in some cases even uh, claim their property uh, because they were basically basically declared non-citizens and banished. And if they were caught within the walls of Rome, well, uh, they didn't have citizen rights anymore. So not a good scene. So is this something that was happening across the entire Roman Republic that, that essentially Sulla asserted dictatorial control over everything yes Sulla was actually made dictator as part of these civil wars and he used that power to uh uh to the type of ends that we would normally associate with that word i mean the the idea of dictatorship in rome at this point was very different than uh w how we use the word now right in fact it was it was an incredibly high political honor uh in times of crisis uh one of the consuls usually and and just to back that up a couple more steps, uh, you know, Rome had a had a two consul system. The the consuls were the two leaders, and they were elected for a one year uh, term. Um, one of the consuls would be made dictator, and he was given six months of basically 
unfettered uh, control over the military and over um, a, a number of various uh, institutions to basically cut through any bureaucratic holdups that might put the republic in danger. And really, at that point, there was the the dictator, and then he would he would uh, he would assign someone known as the master of the horse, who was basically his his first lieutenant, and then everyone down from there answered through those two. But Sulla really used it to like, no, normally when that was put in place, it was because there was a war happening and and we we needed strong leadership, not necessarily like hey, I want to conduct a purge of all of my political opponents, and then that's kind of the way that Sulla decided to use his dictatorship. So was he working then with the veneer that this is normal Roman society, I'm just taking care of threats and, you know, I'll relinquish my dictatorship once I'm done fixing things for everyone? Yes, but I mean, Sulla was a very contradictory kind of guy. He was very much a a demagogue, and and I I don't think it's unfair to call him a little bit unstable. Uh, He was... The, the the mark that Sulla left on the Roman consciousness um, was long-lasting. Uh, he was seen as an example of how not to wield dictatorship and actually made the Romans a lot less likely to uh, appoint anyone a dictator afterwards. But for Julius Caesar being a, a very young Roman noble and a member of a, a family that is in the crosshairs of Sulla's purges, that made him into a different sort of person than he might have been without. I mean, that's a that's a very speculative statement to make, but it, it's more to say that he grew up in this world of, of politics not being normal and of men taking power that didn't necessarily belong to them, but forcing society to accept that seizure of power. And being on the receiving end of some of that power, I think, made him a lot more conscious of what it could accomplish um, when wielded by an effective ruler. It opened the door for him. Absolutely. Caesar was always very ambitious. Um, He gained a a career for himself as uh, Pontifex Maximus, which is a religious position that existed uh, for centuries before Christianity did. It was a a, uh, a Roman religious position that basically emulated all the religious duties that would have been enshrined with the old Roman kings after the kingship was abolished. That's another thing that's really important to know about the Roman Republic. It used to be a Roman kingdom, and then they had a king that was so bad that they abolished kingship forever and established a republic instead. So the Romans had a a severe aversion to the idea of kings. Mm. King was a a, a dirty word. Right. Um, Instead, we make pope. Yeah, and and it was a it was a it was a proto pope, <laughs> it was a practice pope. Um, so yeah, but he he was just performing sort of state religion type duties at that point. Um, but he also ended up making you know senator and then moving his way up to eventually consul. He 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 became consul at one point and was part of a, uh, a political alliance with a couple of other very powerful and very wealthy individuals, specifically uh, Crassus and Pompey. And Caesar made a name for himself uh, militarily after his consulship, and he, he, he was given uh, the governorship of Gaul. Normally, once you finished your term, or uh, I think you could go two terms as uh, consul, uh, you were generally given a five-year governorship of a province kind of away from the center of Rome. The idea to being that 
no one man centralizes too much personal power right because he just literally didn't have the ability to he was too physically far removed from rome to do that but caesar decided to use his time in gaul to do exactly that by conducting a number of wars against the the gauls uh and expanding the roman territory uh immensely um he was even the the first expedition that we know of to land roman troops on the beaches of britain right so he he was incredibly ambitious as a as a military leader and he was a very good military leader like he was very skilled and gained a lot of respect from his troops uh as as a man not just as a sort of a figurehead of the the republic when conducting these military operations would he have been taking uh, instruction from the leadership in rome or was uh, this essentially an autonomous position being the governor and you can expand at will it was pretty autonomous and i mean he, he definitely did some manipulation of the situation to make sure that the conditions existed so he had no choice but to go to war with gaul <laughs> whether or not there would have been a war with the, the gauls is 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 questionable uh if if you know if caesar hadn't been there uh he certainly wanted war and he wanted it for his own glory um, and they just kept you know taking our sheep so we gotta <laughs> gotta do something about it yeah i i didn't dig as deeply into caesar for this topic i i can't remember what exactly the the that's um, fair cause of war was on that one but i i do know that it wasn't uh terribly legitimate um but in general the idea of a, a governor uh, defending their borders is is perfectly within the powers of a governor. It's not as though he was uh, overstepping his bounds in that sense. Um, what was a little bit more unusual was just the sheer level of personal management he put into those campaigns. And and you said he was popular with his troops. Like, would that be at all all ranks? Like, mm -hmm. my understanding is there was a lot of nobility in the military of Rome, but. Did that extend to to lower class people as well? Well, by this point in time, the sort of class divide in the Roman military had decreased significantly. There there had been uh, some some pretty severe uh, reforms in the structure of the military uh, long before Caesar was made, or Caesar was even born, really, that made it a little bit more accessible. You're right. Originally, it was. You had to be, you know, wealthy enough and power and and noble enough to serve in the military, but there were so many nobles lost in in certain conflicts, specifically the the uh, Punic Wars, that they changed things around so that they weren't sending so many of their aristocratic young people off to battle and and made it a lot more uh, open to the plebeian plebeian class, often offering things like like land to uh, anyone who completed a full tour which is fairly long and and you know not many people actually completed it but if you stayed in the in the military for an entire career you could depend on getting a farm somewhere for yourself mm. at the end of it so yeah I, I mean he was honestly in a lot of ways more popular with lower class people than he was necessarily with the the, the nobility of Rome largely because they saw him as uh, largely because the nobles saw him as being a little bit too ambitious and and maybe skirting around the rules a little bit too often and they've seen this before in the form of Sulla and people they know had their names appear on lists and then the people themselves disappeared they're not really 
the biggest fans of, of ambitious men at this point in time. Mm. Um, it's not as though anyone was looking at Caesar at the time of the the wars in Gaul and and gone, this is the new Sulla. But I mean, it's it's something that's kind of always on your mind when you're only a couple of decades out. It makes people uncomfortable. Absolutely. Was this a like was Sulla a big change uh, from the from the past in the Roman Republic in terms of its view of ambitious men? What? Rome Roman culture has always been really interesting for me in that they they seem to be you know we, we have this picture that's kind of left over from the Renaissance really of, of the Romans being this these these incredibly noble high-minded men when in reality they were kind of brutish in a lot of kind of almost surprising ways a lot of the ideas we have about the Romans are kind of borrowed from the Greeks. <laughs> Uh, and, and even then it's idealized but no i i mean they have a they, they had an incredibly uh militaristic culture and the idea of someone uh seeking personal glory was often celebrated i mean the the whole idea of you know the the, the roman triumph you win a battle if you're the commanding officer and winning a battle you get paraded through the streets along with uh, reminders of your conquest and taken up to the temple and glorified in front of everyone in Rome. And yeah, that's that's something that people aspire to. That's something Caesar aspired to. Um, it's something that uh, almost made him not seek uh, the consulship at one point because his triumph was scheduled for the same day as the vote by his rivals. So that he would have to choose either going for his triumph to show everyone what a great uh, military uh, leader he was or actually go and stand for election to the highest office Ugh. in Rome jerks and he ended up and that was Cicero um, oh well <laughs> of course of course it was Cicero and so I, I mean I think that says a lot about ambition in that in that uh, culture yeah um, I, I think they were just a little burnt by Sulla but I mean it, Sulla wasn't the first thing to have burned them i mean I'm, I'm pointing to sulla because he becomes really relevant for people's reaction to caesar but it's not as though that was the only thing that had gone wrong in the last couple of years there had been you know a number of things that i don't know well enough to really get into but i mean the social wars did a real number on uh, on rome there there was a lot of um and and that was all internal struggle not external en enemies and so there's a lot of reevaluation of what Roman society and Roman politics look like at this point in time. And everyone's just really unsure of it. And they're questioning which uh, things they need to keep around and which things they need to like kind of rally around in terms of their so social values and which ones they need to abandon or adapt in order to continue, continue being Romans as they recognize Romanness. Without going too deep into completely disparate topics, no, that's what this show is all about, man. Oh, boy. Was this a point in time for Rome where uh, they, they were stable uh, at their borders, that, that they weren't being actively attacked too much? No. No, there were constant uh, uh, issues on their eastern borders in particular. The Parthians were a pretty common uh, enemy at this point in time. Okay. Um, uh, in fact, one of the one of the triumvirs, Crassus, lost his life fighting uh, the, Parth the Parthians. And it was kind of a it was kind of a sticking point. In fact, it was it, it had almost taken on like a legendary status in in Roman society, where there was this kind of it's it's meant dismissively, but there was this saying that was going around that like uh, the 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 Roman man who conquers Parthia will be will be crowned king. 
and it was the equivalent of saying like when pigs fly right like it's not it's not like saying like we're actually going to bring back the kingship it, it was just trying to d- d- uh, demonstrate how unlikely they thought it was that the parthians could be brought into line and yet they continued to harass roman borders and and parthia is kind of northern iran that's sort of a one of the one of the remnants of the the massive persian empire from a okay. few centuries earlier and they still re- uh, retained quite a bit of you know political and military threat uh, even though they had been uh, somewhat dispersed since that time it's interesting that that's the second hyperbolic statement affiliated with crassus that i'm aware of <laughs> what's the first one well the the legendary wealth of crassus oh yeah which uh was referenced in downton abbey for anyone paying attention they they <laughs> as as a you know a throwaway statement referencing wealth that, yeah of course they did yeah. crassus was unbelievably wealthy He's he's one of the names that comes up when they do the whole uh, hypothetical who was the wealthiest man who ever lived. Um, usually, it ends up going to Mansa Musa at this point, but Crassus is up there, and he got his wealth by really horrible, horrible ways. Do you know anything about this? I did, um, but I don't know. So <laughs> he he was already incredibly wealthy. Just his his family was incredibly wealthy, right? But he got into the real estate game, which is a game that makes a lot of men wealthy. Oh. Um, and he got into the, <laughs> the way, the way he made this happen was he would wait until fire broke out in Rome, which was a fairly common thing. I mean, you have to consider that Rome in this point at this point is, is generally wood structures and people are cooking over open flame. Like fires happen all the time. And Crassus had his own personal fire brigade, which isn't is just not a you know a, a public service that's offered uh, you know over two thousand years ago in the Roman Republic. Uh, you have a fire, figure out how to put it out. Hope your neighbors really like you. Go to the well. Yeah, Crassus would show up at a burning building and approach the distraught owner of said burning building standing outside watching his entire world engulfed in flames and offer him a deal hmm. either crassus could buy his house at a pittance and this man could continue to live in his own house just pay rent to crassus or crassus could just leave and he would show up with these firefighters ready to fight the fire and if this person said no, I'm I'm not going to do that. Crassus said, "Okay, come on, boys," and they left. Wow, that's just a few shades away from a protection racket. It's not quite, but slightly lazy protection racket. <laughs> well, I mean, to be fair, he only demands the protection once something's actually exactly. happened. Which does, does that make it better? A lot of people took Crassus up on his offers. Shock. And so, uh, in very short order, Crassus owned an incredible percentage of the land uh, or of the of the real estate in Rome. Yeah, and using the money from that, he you know invested in other places and bought more real estate and became very very wealthy. He had a lot of money. Nice but, guy. Yeah, man, that one that one always kind of blows my mind. That I mean, it's a very clever scheme i think scheme is a fair word for it certainly the the cleverest part of that scheme is resisting the urge to start starting fires 
just because you which see there are never any records of him ever doing to be perfectly clear doesn't mean it didn't happen <laughs> records um, have a way of fixing themselves yeah it's it's funny when you have enough money just about anything goes away so anyways that's a lot of time spent on a guy that we were not planning on talking about I mean, Caesar broke a lot of rules on his way to power. Most of them fairly well documented. Most of them, I'm guessing, people listening are fairly familiar with the idea of the the, the crossing of the Rubicon and this idea of, of bringing troops, which were never supposed to enter the city of Rome, into the city of Rome with him and still managing to get away with it. I mean, that, that was the kind of move that Caesar became well known for and in a lot of cases appreciated by common people for they liked that someone was taking charge they appreciated that caesar seemed to treat them well i mean he was for better or worse just an incredibly populist leader um and i mean i i don't mean to make him out as as being you know i I don't want to be too cynical about him on the other hand i mean he he was well known for being actually quite lenient with his political enemies he would forgive anyone for anything once which sounds ominous, and I suppose it is, but he never had to give them that first chance. It's a fairly effective method. It was incredibly effective. In fact, it was far more effective than anyone previously, uh, you know, going around executing people willy-nilly. But it, it's also the kind of thing that you learn having grown up in the era of, of Sulla's reign. Um, Sulla didn't give people second chances, and people loathed him for it. Um, when Caesar gave people chances... Uh, they thanked him. Praise Caesar. Yeah. And eventually he had gained basically every political office that someone could hold and was granted the office of dictator in perpetuity by the Senate. And now, that was a new thing, right? It was a brand new thing. Keep in mind before dictatorships had been six month terms at the end of which the dictatorship was once again called into question. Normally dictatorships weren't even kept the entire six months. Normally they were relinquished as soon as whatever crisis had uh, warranted a dictatorship uh, was over. But Caesar was given this dictatorship in perpetuity by by the Senate. I mean, he, he didn't even force anyone at knife point to give this to him. At it's... knife point. Yeah, I did that on purpose. Come on. Um, Too soon. It's been thousands of years. Um, no, they, they just gave it to him because they appreciated him as a leader and they saw that, well, I, I mean, they didn't actually really, they didn't really appreciate him as a leader, but they saw that they needed him because mm. without him, the people would not want them, except not, not, not every senator was fine with this. Not every senator liked it so much. And, you know, what, what Caesar does next is kind of one of those things that we have to step back and go, okay, well, I don't really know which story to believe here. But I think all of them are representative of the general feeling about Julius Caesar, which is that in general, a lot of people felt that he wanted to crown himself king eventually. And as you'll remember, uh, Romans are very allergic to kings. There are various stories about him not standing to greet visitors uh, to him in in an official capacity. And that was the traditional way of a king greeting people. Uh, Supposedly, he was possibly injured or tired if this even happened at all there were uh stories of like you know putting putting purple which is the color of kings onto his toga his close friend and at times co-consul uh mark antony 
at, at one point apparently offered Caesar a crown of laurels, which he declined and put aside and said that he was going to use as an offering to the gods later. But number one, if this, you know, number one, we don't know if this happened, but number two, if this did happen, well, what just went down there? I mean, they're close friends and political allies. Did Caesar know that Mark Antony was going to do this? Like, was it a setup so that he could publicly turn down a kingship because he felt like the mood was going that way? Uh, was Mark Antony trying to surprise him with this and hope he rolled with it? Was, you know, it's it, it, the whole thing is kind of messy. What really matters, though, is that people felt like he was taking enough power that he might as well have been king. And I, I think that's the, the real takeaway from all of that. And those sound like a bunch of um, social faux pas or, mm -hmm. or just in general mild interaction things that yeah maybe happened, maybe didn't happen, but mm -hmm. it's easy for the rumor to spread. Well, there were also there's also stories of of um, the, the the populace going around demanding Caesar be made king. They would chant rex 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 when he came out on a balcony or they would uh um there there were instances of of uh of uh people putting laurel crowns onto statues of caesar and and the guards having to come and, and take them down like you can understand why some of the aristocracy would be very concerned about his aspirations at this point in time was the office of Tribune of the Plebs still around? Yes. And did it still have the power that it had? If you, if you mean symbolic and not a lot, then then yes. I mean, no, it, that's that's maybe not entirely fair for the Tribune of the Plebs. The, the Tribune of the Plebs was uh, uh, an office that was... The idea was to have somebody in the, the Senate who had some symbolic power, but not a lot of literal voting power, who, who could... Uh, uh, step in on certain matters on behalf of the people the power i mean is is the uh, rabble rousing power mm. that they did okay. um yes no that that still existed the thing is the tribune of the plebs uh, i forget who it was at the time but um very much supported caesar okay it was the it was the standard uh, senators who who uh who were against him that's what i was wondering yeah all of this stuff is happening all of these supposed faux pas have occurred caesar is apparently setting himself up for kingship and conspiracy is hatched um this part of the story doesn't warrant a ton of time spent everyone knows how this goes there's over 60 senators who kind of corner him in a uh it wasn't actually in the the senate the senate was being um renovated at the time but it was a meeting of the senate and cassius and brutus the main uh uh, offenders cornered him the cassius uh, pulled down his his toga around his arms so that he couldn't struggle and um uh caesar was stabbed 23 times uh and and killed um brutal left there laying for three hours choking on his own blood well he he had long since died but he, he, he lay, laid there in his own blood for three hours before a few slaves gathered him up and carried him home really? um well because caesar was dead and what do you do when caesar is dead the, the conspirators marched through the streets showing their knives and they said caesar is dead you are free rejoice and people shut their uh their doors in in fear because like what, what do you do at this point there was no military in rome there what? was some military in rome there was caesar's military in rome it was yes <laughs> so were people shutting their doors because they were expecting the 
response to be uh, an immediate overthrow of fighting what well they they didn't know what the response was going to be is it going to be a crackdown by uh by caesar and other people who are still in power has the senate killed other people or are other people too afraid to step up and take power and the senate is going to retake the city are they going to do so by force that people don't realize is on the way is there going to be fighting between caesar's forces and this other senatorial force hypothetically coming along are the uh, are the cesarean forces going to turn and support the senate i i don't know i i'm gonna stay home <laughs> see what happens there's a number of people who who take kind of drastic action based on uncertainty at this point in time uh cleopatra who was in the city at the time flees um she was romantically involved with julius caesar and so i can understand why she might want to get out of dodge mark antony who is the other co the other consul and a close friend of caesar's fled the city disguised as a slave actually because he was worried he'd be recognized what i'm if caesar had the popularity that he had why would the senators go ahead with assassinating him when it seems like the immediate response would be uh, an attack on them I think more than anything else, that assassination attempt is a display of just how disconnected the upper and lower classes of Rome were at this point in time. So when they were saying, now you are free, they actually believed that the people thought they were oppressed by Caesar. The people who assassinated Julius Caesar believed that they were restoring the Republic. They believed that this would bring them back to a potentially fictional time where the Roman Republic was uh, based on law and, and respectable and, and well-governed and all of this stuff. They were making the Republic great again. That was a thing that I was trying not to say. I know. Um, yeah, but I, 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 think they, I think they strongly did believe it. And I mean, a lot of that is because he was acting in the face of all of these political and social conventions that everyone believed were rules and were suddenly discovering that they were merely conventions and not terribly happy about it but i mean that's how societies crumble right i mean th there's there's so much about a society that's based on convention that we don't necessarily consider that it might be changeable or might be ignorable the tool of shame is useful for the continuation of a political system mm-hmm and likewise, the ability to uh, ignore that shame and act in spite of it has made for some of the boldest and most disruptive changes that the world has ever seen. Because sometimes all it takes is a whole bunch of people saying, well, you can't do that, and someone else to respond to them. Why not? Mark Antony was back into Rome within a day or two after he realized that no one was actually chasing him. He's, he was kind of confused as to why he wasn't assassinated, which is kind of a reasonable uh, reaction given how close he was to Caesar and his position as co-consul. I mean, if you're looking to overthrow the government, got to kill two guys. And that's indicative of the different perceptions of reality, I suppose. Sure. And I mean, there's th there are some historians who have uh, suggested that, including ancient historians who have suggested that 
the reason Antony lived was the incident with the laurel wreath, where he tried to put it on Caesar's head, specifically because there was this general discontentment with the way that the political process was going. And having that king issue to focus in on made the issue entirely about Caesar himself and not the entire structure of power around Caesar. So intentionally or not, Mark Antony may have restricted the response uh, to all of this to only Caesar by, uh, by focusing on that king narrative. It's interesting that they wouldn't have a problem with him trying to make Caesar king. But I can I can see the slightly circuitous logic. The senators who organized this assassination, and they've begun calling themselves at this point the the liberatores, the the liberators. Um, so we'll we'll use that name for them. The liberatores saw Mark Antony as an enemy. They did not like him, but they also thought that this whole thing rested on the shoulders of one man. And they thought that if they killed that one man, the whole thing would come crumbling down. And when it didn't, they were concerned because, as you've rightly pointed out, they had no army in the city, and Caesar did. They didn't really have that much money. They didn't really have that much real power. Um, the Senate, I mean, is, is certainly an institution in Rome, but it wasn't a majority of senators. How many was were there in the conspiracy? About 60. The- Compared to the size of the Senate, I couldn't. I, I I didn't spend that much time on it, mind you. But I I couldn't find um the the number of uh, active senators at that point in time. However, I will tell you this much: you needed a minimum of two hundred senators for quorum. So, they are they are not the majority. That was that was about as much information as as I was looking to find. Okay. Um, mind you, that's the number who were actively involved in the assassination of Caesar. However, many more uh, had liberatory um, sympathies. Uh, couldn't really speak to. That's something that no one will ever really know the answer to. Mark Antony acted decisively in the wake of all of this uncertainty. He returned to the city. He went to Caesar's widow, uh, Calpurnia, who uh, granted her blessing to Mark Antony to take control of Caesar's troops and his estate. So that is a lot of money and a lot of soldiers. And did it come down to his wife to make that decision? It was largely symbolic. I mean, the idea of, of um, Caesar's wife being extremely involved in the household is is a very Roman sentiment, the idea of, of her having some say in all of this. Because Caesar didn't have a son with any of his three wives. He had a, a daughter, Julia. but um, so, so he didn't have a clear male, male heir, and the will hadn't been read yet, and the city was in turmoil having support from Calpurnia was about as much extra support as you can get when you're already Mark Antony and right. co-consul and uh, known associate and friend of Julius Caesar. Uh, Calpurnia just helps out, especially at the at the familial level. The lower and middle classes are enraged at this point over the killing of their, you know, their champion. Whether or not Caesar had the common person in mind, I... Eh. It's a, it's a different discussion to have, but um, he certainly made them think that he was on their side. The uh, liberatories, meanwhile, had basically barricaded themselves um, inside or on the on the Capitoline Hill and were waiting for the other shoe to drop. Mark Antony went to them and said, look, let's talk. I am going to 
let all of you off. I am going, I'm not going to lay charges on any of you. However, that means that every decree, every motion, every law, every political appointment that Caesar has ever made stands. That's the compromise. We don't dismantle what he's built. If we find a law that hasn't been uh, sent out to the Senate yet, but it is in his papers and in his hand, that goes through. All of it stands. That's the deal. Otherwise, I have 5,000 soldiers waiting, uh, and we can do this the hard way. That seems remarkably mild. It's kind of a masterstroke, at least in the short term, because he appeases the troops loyal to Caesar by keeping the entire structure that makes their jobs exist in place. And he is taking charge, which they appreciate in the leader, obviously. He manages to make the liberatories feel like Antony, if isn't necessarily on their side, is certainly willing to protect them, uh, which keeps the function of the Senate still functional. And it prevents the disruption of the government because now we don't have this whole dismantling of the entire government and building it from scratch the institutions that existed yesterday still exist today and things are going to continue on. And honestly, if you are a, a governor out in Iberia, you're going to hear that everything is fine at about the same time as you're going to hear that Caesar died. That's important when you're running a massive empire. True. Um, he probably prevented a popular uprising of like French Revolution style bloodiness and chaos which as i said is is at least in the short term a pretty good move and not uh not an obvious one no you would think that the obvious one would be to punish the killers which is you know normally what we do with killers in most societies particularly given his closeness to the victim of course had caesar created a lot of institutions as dictator in perpetuity there were a lot of offices that had been altered or created to work around the new power structure of dictator in perpetuity. I mean, he had um, a master, excuse me, he had a master of the horse like he would have in any other dictatorship commanding the entirety of the Roman uh, uh, military. Keep in mind, that's different than our normal setup where the consul has a consular army but just a consular army and the governors have their own armies. Um, under the dictatorship, all armies report to the master of the horse. So it's a slightly different like military setup. Like it's, it's little things like that that have been not so much radically altered, but just kind of tweaked to fit it into the new power uh, structure that puts Caesar at the top of literally everything. Um, but I think a bigger concern was the, the appointments who's holding which office. Right. Ironically, um, Caesar had appointed both Brutus and Cassius to, awful, uh, to offices, um, and this demand was forcing that they continue to serve in those offices. Hmm. Um, but he said all, he, and he, he wanted that. That's, that's what he meant. Well, that's very clever. Little Hiccup comes along on the 19th of March. Um, did we say that Caesar was killed on March 15th? Everyone knows that, right? 44 BCE. On the 19th, so four days later, um, Caesar's will is read. Wills of important people were actually, it's, it's, it's really interesting. They were deposited with the at, at the Temple of the Vestal Virgins, where they just kept 
everyone's will like it's some sort of weird sacred will bank yeah yeah like a, like a safety deposit box but yeah more incense i suppose blessed by certain religious rites but everyone's wills were kept there everyone's and they were kept secret until the time of that person's death surprise wills yeah well i mean that's that's not that unusual i mean uh, a will doesn't need to be public in order to be uh, valid in in our society either it was just it was a little bit more common to have things kind of crop up in the wills most of the time surprise will wasn't that surprising it would go to your oldest male heir and you know there'd be some other things in there but nothing nothing te terribly radical and when caesar's will was read uh mark antony was fully expecting to be named heir and continue to do exactly what he was doing at this point except he wasn't ouch it turned out that caesar had altered his will to leave two-thirds of his estate to his grandnephew, Gaius Octavius, who was 18 at the time and was away uh, on campaign in Macedonia doing some military training because he was a child. But he was to be posthumously adopted as Julius Caesar's heir and was renamed Gaius Julius Caesar Octavianus, Octavian. Mark Antony's reaction to this is kind of odd he mostly ignored it well it's a very inconvenient thing it's a very inconvenient thing for him but as far as he's concerned who has a stronger claim to this power him who has done all this work with caesar who has been a close friend and associate of caesar's for all this time who is a grown man with military experience um or his great nephew who's off in macedonia who has no father his, his mother had remarried like he, he just doesn't see this kid as a as a problem he's a random punk kid mm -hmm, basically and so he just kept going like nothing had been revealed in the will um he figured he could probably back it up later when you know he was dictator for life and could probably make things like wills go away i'm guessing besides he had a funeral to plan uh the next day the 20th of march mark antony reads the eulogy at caesar's funeral and I think it's fair to say that it was designed to agitate. <laughs> he pulled out Caesar's will and he began reading from it all of the sections where, remember how Octavian got two thirds of the estate? Uh -huh. One third of that estate was dedicated to paying these small gifts to uh, his soldiers and to just the common people i'm not sure exactly how it shakes out i have a feeling that there was just like and so many denarii to the common people um but pointing out that you know caesar really loved everyone so much and how this should never have happened to such a you know blah 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 even um, in death he's so smooth and at the peak of all of this he pulls caesar's toga off of his body and holds it up and it is the the, the toga that he was wearing when he was killed and it is stained with blood and he's waving it around and the crowd gets whipped into a frenzy and starts throwing things on the funeral pyre making it massive and then throwing burning things from the pyre into buildings and it just turns into the riot that has been percolating beneath the surface this entire time and the the conspirators all flee the city because they kind of go well i don't care what antony said um he may not be charging us but i don't think he can guarantee our safety here it's probably a good call 
Mark Antony relieves Brutus and Cassius of their offices, basically under the guise of being unable to guarantee their safety as they carry out their duties and sent them on assignments that were way below their rank. It was like in ensuring good management of grain stores often, you know, it's just garbage. And so they just declined these offices and left for Macedonia where uh, other liberatories were kind of convening and starting to figure out what they were going to do with their lives because they had some sympathizers there and uh, it seemed like their best shot. Maybe meet this young Octavius? They had no interest in Octavian. They uh, saw him as about as important as Mark Antony did, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, They were a little bit dismayed that any heir had been named at all, but he was a slight inconvenience, if, if anything at all. So Antony continued enacting laws that he claimed to have found among Caesar's papers and paying himself from uh, Octavian's portion of the inheritance as though nothing had happened and ran the the Caesarian faction, like the, the family business, as though nothing was going on. And then in May, Octavian returned and he went, where's my inheritance? I think this is a really good place to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll uh, maybe look at some of this from Octavian side of things. All right. Back on HI101 here with Dan McGinnis. Hello. And we talked a little bit about Mark Antony, who felt that he had uh, maybe not been treated the most fairly by Caesar posthumously. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, who made some like very necessary moves right after Caesar's assassination that potentially prevented some really terrible things, but also put him in a very precarious position. But also stabilized it until he could assume power. Yes, absolutely. It is just a short-term solution. That's all I am saying. And then at the very end, briefly mentioned Octavian. So let's talk about Octavian a little bit. He was born the 23rd of September in 63 BCE, which means that at the time of Caesar's assassination, he was only 18. Just a child. And yet, the moment that he heard, he jumped on a ship before he had even heard anything about the contents of his will to return to Rome to see what the state of his family was. See, Octavian was actually from a bit of a difficult family. His father died when he was four, and uh, his mother remarried, but his stepfather didn't really care for Octavian. Uh, that much not like he was a a, you know a a horrible monster or anything like that he just had no time for someone who wasn't really his son and they had octavian's grandmother julia raise him for most of his childhood julia was um caesar's sister um which makes um octavian his great nephew so nephew once removed yay complicated family stuff there's not a whole lot known about his childhood as of, you know, as it is with most childhoods, but he is noted as having made something of an impression uh, on Caesar when his grandmother Julia uh, passed away and he spoke at her funeral. And Octavian was always kind of taken with 
Caesar for, I think, obvious reasons. He was, you know, love him or hate him, was by all accounts an incredibly charismatic man. And asked to join Caesar actually on on campaign in uh, in Iberia, which is Spain now. He 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 was actually uh, he he was fighting his old ally uh, Pompey, who was a member of the the first triumvirate, and he agreed to take Augustus along. Um, right before the campaign uh, left for Spain, Octavian fell ill and was unable to go, but he commissioned a boat afterwards to take him to Spain to Caesar's camp and he ended up having to basically fight through enemy lines to get to the camp at you know we're we're talking he he was 15 or 16 when all of this happened that sounds expensive and dangerous well i mean he had a massive bodyguard and came from uh, an incredibly wealthy family but okay. well, yeah. you know it, it it tracks um but yeah absolutely and i mean that's an impressive thing for anybody to do let alone a 16 year old and again impressed caesar greatly by all of this and and from all accounts this is the point at which when caesar returned from this campaign he went to the temple and and amended his will to make octavian his heir okay and at the time that caesar died if my math is correct he's in his mid-50s isn't he yes okay so in his 50s when he actually really first met octavian Mm -hmm. yeah that's a good that's a good age difference for for mentorship. Yeah, absolutely, and and from all accounts, uh, uh, Octavian really took to him as a mentor, uh, tried to learn as much as possible from him because I mean, you know, they they certainly knew each other from before this campaign, as as you know, Octavian spent all of his time around Julia, but it's not as though Caesar was around all that much. He generally had things to do, so Opian um, Caesar. A, a lot of that learning was. Uh, by reputation and through example, not necessarily one-on-one mentorship. As we mentioned previously, he had been sent off to Macedonia on campaign to basically learn the ropes of of command, because by all accounts, he wasn't actually that great a military commander and um, hadn't had a lot of training in the military arts, which is actually really unusual for a Roman citizen at this point in time. Especially a rich one. Especially a rich one. I mean... You're kind of getting into the era now where aristocrats are being sent to uh, Greece to learn rhetoric or, or uh, even math or, or Egypt to learn math. Um, but mainly what you learn as part of your education, um, even as a more wealthy Roman, is how to fight, if you're wealthy enough, how to command, and the types of rhetoric that you need to be a successful politician, which is not really the same as what we would traditionally think of as, as logic or rhetoric. It's more like debate, I guess. Right. Both flair. Um, because so much of what happens in, in uh, Roman politics is just being very charismatic and convincing people of things. Octavian, on the other hand, had had quite a bit of education in those sort of, you know, those, those Greek topics those soft greek topics like logic and math and knowing science stuff oh he took the soft greek option <laughs> um yeah philosophy had about the same reputation as it does now oh but wasn't yeah he, he just i don't know there was there was something of I, I i'm sure there were Rom- romans who looked at him and kind of went like yeah there's something wrong with that kid he just doesn't want to fight that much 
that would maybe be less problematic now depending on where you were being raised but yeah he just he just didn't have it in him really although he tried he, he didn't he didn't shirk away from it it just wasn't so uh, he he was aware that this was a, a this was something he was lacking yeah and, and tried to fill it by you know going on campaign and trying to learn from the best commanders in in caesar's army uh he was aware i mean even at this point part of consulship meant taking personal command of the roman military you couldn't be consul if you didn't have some sort of military experience they're not just going to hand it to somebody who's never commanded before right with that in mind he was trying to learn how to command and he was trying to win a battle so he could at least have one to point to i mean he's also 18 at this point that's not sure but there were a lot of other nobles who were already commanding not not entire armies not entire legions or anything like that but might be commanding their own cohort at 18 no problem that's true I it's, mean, it's lot, i know when i was 18 I, I was i was at least up to the it's a lot like the uh the royal navy in that respect where you have all of these hardened soldiers or sorry all these hardened uh seamen who are being commanded by a 13 year old cadet because his family has power and a title and that's what you do when you're 13 and wealthy Oof. you go command a sailing ship that was a very real thing and and it's it's not that different for the romans but yeah, as we said before, as soon as he hears that Caesar has been killed, he sails for home because that's his family. And he doesn't realize how closely it's his family just yet, but it is still his family. Those are the people who raised him. When he got home, um, or at least to Italy, he heard the news that he had been declared Caesar's heir, which was as much of a shock to him as anyone else, and decided to go and collect on his inheritance. But he sent a message ahead to Mark Antony to let him know that he was on his way. And, and Mark Antony basically just said, no. Oh. D was anyone with Octavian at this point? He had a detail that was accompanying him home, but... Just a handful. Yeah, I mean, without Caesar, he's not a terribly powerful individual. No. And part of what Caesar is lending him now after his death is vast quantities of money and he doesn't have access to it because Mark Antony isn't turning it over. Hmm. But yeah, Mark Antony just didn't really see him as any threat and figured, well, this is working out well enough for me now. I may, I might be able to solidify power and get whatever this is going to be running. This is one of the first moments that we really see Octavian as being like, like having that spark of what is going to be Augustus someday, which is that he lands at uh, Brundisium, which is the this port on on the eastern coast of of Italy where they launch all of their all of their eastern campaigns. So if you're if you're doing any fighting over in Greece, in Parthia, anywhere east of Rome, you're going to be going through Brundisium. He lands at Brundisium, finds detachments that. Uh, uh, I say that like he, he searched through the city. He knew where to go. He went to these uh, these legions that had been prepared for an invasion of Parthia that Caesar was planning at the time of his death. This is another one of those things that people point to as being king-like behavior. Remember, whoever conquers Parthia will be made king. Um, that wasn't the intent. The intent was to avenge Crassus. But... Oh, yeah, no, definitely, but also it's worth a shot. <laughs> well, I mean, secure borders make a... Anyways... He went to these legions and he went, hey, how much money do you guys have for conducting this campaign? And they said, well, here's our, here's our treasure fund. And he goes, great, you're not going anymore. This is my money now. Bold. And they went, 
well, your new dead dad, I guess, uh, was a pretty cool guy. And I don't know what this Anthony Dweeb is doing, but uh, sure. He gained something like 700 million uh, denarii, which I have no idea what the, con the conversion is on that. I forgot to do it before we recorded this, but it sounds like a lot of money. It's a big, yeah, it's big. So now he has money, which means he can gain power. Does I he mean, also have those legions? Yeah, they declare they declare their support for Octavian, who is a private citizen at this point in time. By the way, he holds no government office, which is illegal. Also, the appropriation of those funds is also illegal, which a Senate hearing did determine many years later, but they also determined that he was doing it in order to confront Antony, who they believed was doing more bad things than the than appropriating funds. Question. So decided to let it go. Was that Senate hearing held while Augustus was emperor? No, not that late. But he was consul at the time. Well, was it held while he was in power? Yes. And it found that he did the right thing? That's fantastic. I know, it's amazing how that works. Antony was livid. He claimed that the reason that he was withholding the funds was that Octavian had basically slept his way into the will. Come again? He accused Octavian of a sexual relationship with Julius Caesar. Ah. Now, that maybe isn't as scandalous as some people who are less familiar with social mores in Rome uh, would think. It's not that weird for uh, a Roman man to take a, a much younger male lover it's just that if you are that younger male lover that looks really bad on you so there's it's it's more about the power dynamic of it it wasn't about slandering caesar it's this weird thing by saying that he's not saying anything bad or wrong about no. julius caesar no. he's entirely attacking octavian by that and is basically saying that he doesn't deserve the money he because he was he a gold digger yeah yeah basically that's that's the the perfect metaphor i don't need to go any further on that here's the problem though antony was starting to lose the support of the senate i mean yeah he did let them off of murdering their dictator for life but they felt like he was being too free for uh, free with those laws from caesar um and felt that he was gathering too much power too quickly it's kind of like well what did we do the assassination for anyways Guys, that, was, that wasn't even worth it. He was also starting to lose support of the population to some extent because, well, he wasn't holding Caesar's assassins to account. Also, he had explicitly blocked a, a vote in favor of deifying Caesar. People wanted to make him a god, which is a thing that you do through a Senate hearing, uh, a Senate motion in, in Roman times. Um, it's a matter of... Uh... Was were Robert's rules of order in effect here, or or was there a different form of deification? <laughs> there's there's certain things about Rome that are so familiar that I, I think it makes the weird things stand out that much more when it comes to things like this. I I, I really appreciate little moments like yeah, we're, we're gonna vote on whether to make him a god. No big deal. I mean, they're getting too deep into the weeds. That's not that far off from. Oh no. Uh, what what the Catholic Church does with um, beatification? True, but that is not a a, a Republican government. <laughs> that's true. That's true. They, you know, being an elected government, they. Well, I mean, I mean, that's that's partly partly the you know 
the times and the idea of separation of church and state not being a thing but you know in any case we're, we're off we're off topic again um you know by 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 june of uh 44 bce so within three months of caesar's death octavian has more than three thousand soldiers under his command not bad not bad and a lot of people are looking at him and going wow this kid looks super easy to manipulate but he's also very powerful Forget about Antony. We're done with that guy. He sucks. <laughs> Antony was in this bad spot where he could either denounce the Liberatores and lose Senate support out of it because he's going back on his word on, you know, uh, protecting senators. And just in general look like kind of a two-faced guy. Yeah. Or he could continue to uphold the compromise and lose popular support, which was starting to manifest in you know, your riots. Bit of a rock and hard place. Octavian doesn't have either of those problems. He's in kind of a good position. So Cicero, who is just, I don't know who Cicero does like. He seems to dislike everyone, which yeah, seems about right for Cicero, I suppose. And, and he's so good at it. He was very, very good at it. I, you know, there's not a lot of stuff that I can honestly say. This is This is poorly phrased. I enjoy reading history for, you know, for the stuff that comes out of it, for the, for the, you know, for the learning that comes out of it. There's not a lot of it that I can like sit down and be like, ah, like that was good. Cicero is one of those few things that I can read. And it's like, this is, this holds up hmm. your, your speeches. They're vicious. And I love them. Clap back, Cicero. I love it. He starts this, this series of attacks against Mark Antony, uh, denouncing his character basically and speaking in favor of Octavian while Octavian continues to seduce troops away from Mark Antony. Basically by saying, like, you're Caesar's troops, I'm Caesar's heir, I'm calling myself Julius Caesar now, okay. why are you supporting this clown? Yeah, it, it, all, it all makes sense, it all works. The synergy here. Synergy. <laughs> Had um, he entered Rome yet, or was he still out? Uh, away from Rome, gathering these troops. He was in and out. It was it was kind of a complicated situation. He was like, he wasn't barred from Rome or anything like that, but okay. his his troops were staying outside of the city. Okay, um, that was still a pretty big move to march troops into Rome. It had only been done a couple of times, and each time was a pretty. It's not a moment you come back from. There's there's only a, forward from there. It's a crossing of the Rubicon. You could say it's the crossing of the Rubicon. <laughs> I'm so sorry to the listeners. I hate that so I much. I apologize. In November, two entire legions leave Antony and declare for Octavian. We're going to be talking a lot about things like legions. Technically, a legion is supposed to be about 5,000 soldiers. Well, technically, a legion is 5,000 soldiers. In practice, it almost never is that strong. Um, okay. But this is... Still pretty it's, bad. It's, hmm? Still pretty bad. It's still pretty bad. Well, I mean, the idea is that like there's uh, a century, which is 100 soldiers. You get 50 centuries to a cohort. Sorry, did I get that right? No, yeah, five five centuries to a cohort, and then 10 cohorts to a legion. Yes, 5,000. There we go. Found it. Um, that that's generally how the 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 military is broken out, but I mean the idea that every single one of those divisions is at full strength is is very rare. But still, we're talking about you know two two entire legions is 
probably seven or eight thousand soldiers easy that's a big army that's that that's super bad publicity he's a private citizen <laughs> yeah but he's caesar's it's, private citizen yeah yeah basically um but like the problem here is that like we're looking at civil war with someone who isn't even like a member of the upper classes it's just some dude with so much money and so many soldiers and so the uh the senate decides to throw behind their support behind octavian because this this is just a really bad look on them they decide to legitimize his rule by giving him an official rank in the military so now him being a commander is much less inconvenient and they could just appoint him to that yeah yeah that was something that could be appointed by senate besides mark antony's uh consulship was coming to the end and it was coming to the type of end where he was about to be sent off to be governor for five years somewhere else. Right. And they decided not to give him some sort of dictator for life type title. They wanted him gone. They actually gave him Macedonia as consulship, which by the way, was in significant turmoil at this point due to the liberatores who had much more support in, in the Eastern provinces. And Mark Antony didn't want that assignment. He wanted Cisalpine Gaul, which was basically uh, what, what is now northern Italy, basically. And you could request a governorship. It would require the gov- the current governor of that place to step down uh, and allow you to take over his governorship. And uh, the current governor of uh, Cisalpine Gaul, Decimus Brutus, not the same Brutus from the line from the Shakespeare play, which probably never happened, but uh, related, he decided not to give it to Mark Antony. I can't imagine why he wouldn't be terribly accommodating. Shocking. And so Mark Antony said, okay, and invaded Cisalpine Gaul with what troops he had left. This is a very... This is the kind of thing that Mark Antony thought was a very Caesar move. Ah. You know... When in reality, it was probably a pretty bad move and probably not a thing that Julius Caesar ever would have actually done. Julius Caesar probably would have taken that governorship in Macedonia and, uh, I don't know, turned it into some sweeping military victory against the Parthians that make him just undeniable as a leader. Basically make it so that they have to crown him king. Mark Antony kind, kind of pitched a fit a little. Seems like he has a patience problems. I would say that's fair. I would say that's a fair uh, assessment of Mark Antony's character. Um, the Senate went, okay, hey, Octavian, you want us? You want to help us take this Alpine Gaul back from Mark Antony? Kind of and they, military problem. And they sent him with his new command alongside both of the new consuls to fight against Mark Antony and Cisalpine Gaul. And at the Battle of uh, Mutina in 43 BCE in April, both consuls were actually killed during the battle. But Mark Antony was defeated and it left Octavian as the sole commander of eight entire legions of soldiers. Wow. Was there any question about how those consuls died? No, they were killed in battle. Okay. It's yeah, there's there's no foul play suspected there. Cuz that's pretty convenient for Octavian. You know, consuls would die I'm not going to say frequently in battle, but because part of their role is as a military commander, it's not 
unusual for that to happen. The, the whole point was that if you're going to be the most powerful man in Rome, put your money where your mouth is. It's a philosophy. I don't know if it's the best philosophy, but it's a philosophy that I can kind of appreciate for for its certain nuances. Um, it worked pretty well for Rome for a good period of time. It worked very well for them, yeah. The Senate attempted to credit Decimus Brutus, the governor of Cisalpine Gaul, with the, the victory, but Octavian said no. He took all eight of his legions, which were you know, his own plus the remnant of the entire consular army, camped them and said, I'm not bringing them back uh, and we're not using them anywhere else until you acknowledge that this was my victory. Wow, that is that is effective. Because Mark Antony was still at large. It's not as if they, they captured him at the end of this and he was still a threat and they wanted those soldiers to help deal with him. And Octavian said, nope, not going to do it. They waffled for a while on what to do about it. And then uh, Octavian said, you know what, this is taking long enough. And in the summer of that same year, he marched all eight legions into Rome. Again, this is that not coming back moment that we were talking about. And he said, I hear there's a position open as consul. Ooh. I'd like to apply, please. I've brought my CV. I have 40,000 references. <laughs> And the Senate granted him the consulship. It was a limited term only. They figured, what's you know, fine. What's the worst that could happen? What's the worst that could happen? The first thing that he did as consul was he had all of the death orders against Mark Antony rescinded. He said, he's gone through enough. Let's bring this guy back. Mostly because Octavian, you know, with, with, with Julius Caesar being kind of the first generation removed from Sulla and seeing what you know, dissent could do for power. Octavian being two generations removed, I think gave him his, you know, a, a yet another unique perspective where he could see what unity could do for power. I, I think that everyone kind of learns from what's come immediately before them and maybe, maybe one more removed and then beyond that it becomes academic. But seeing the example of both Sulla and Caesar... Uh, I, I think he really understood um, what alliances could do to further your own personal ambitions. And he wasn't ready to toss away Mark Antony yet. He was a valuable uh, ally. He had a lot of military experience. He had a lot of political experience. He knew all the right people. Caesar liked him. Well, yeah, that's, yeah, exactly. It's a very important point. He also extended a hand to uh, Marcus Aemilius uh, Lepidus, who was Caesar's former master of the horse. He was also current Pontifex Maximus. So we have the supreme political, military, and uh, uh, commanders united with the declared legal heir of Julius Caesar. That's a pretty powerful crossover there. You've got a good team. So good, in fact, that he had the unity between these three men um, legitimized and codified as the second triumvirate by the Senate. That's something that even the first triumvirate never was bold enough to get done. The, the, the alliance between uh, 
Julius Caesar, Pompey, and Crassus was never legitimate. It was just a, a, an agreement between three men. The second triumvirate was enshrined in law. They were given new powers. They the, the three of them divided governorship of the empire between them. Yes, it was on a fixed uh, term. It was a five-year term, and that had to be re re-ratified after those five years if they wanted to con- uh, to continue or denied if not. But I mean, this is already more power than Julius Caesar ever attained. They had business cards made. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, everybody knew who they were. Every knew, everybody knew what they were, and that's a big deal. Privately, Octavian believed that with the other two, the Senate could be made virtually irrelevant. Like, yeah, they were getting their power from the Senate, but it was almost symbolic at that point. They could make the Senate do whatever they wanted it to do. Uh, they could just go right around the Senate. They didn't need the Senate anymore. But the reason that he wanted that was because he believed that going around the Senate was the best way to solve the endemic political instability that was taking place within the Republic. He saw the divide between the senators as being a major source of the problem. He saw these populist generals as being a major source of the problem. He believed that if he could get everyone to unite under three men that are so powerful, that are working for similar purposes, that no one else could really defy them. And if those three men were good men, that he could repair the Republic. And in the process, probably gain a lot of power for himself. Doesn't hurt. So now with this union between Octavian, Antony, and Lepidus, they had fixed most of the problems that were happening in Rome, in the city itself, uh, in the capital which is very, very important. But the next step was fixing the problems outside of Rome, uh, specifically in the form of the liberatories. And that became the first major goal of the second triumvirate was to bring Caesar's killers to justice. Now, I think that's probably a good place to uh, take a break. And um, when we come back next time, we'll talk about the war to bring Caesar justice. Okay. Talk to you then. The second triumvirate was built of necessity. Octavian needed Antony's experience and continuity, and Antony needed Octavian's name and loyal followers. But like so many relationships built on mutual need, this one would only last as long as it was useful to both parties. Next time on HI101, we'll see this friendship dissolve as the two men sparred over who would determine the shape of the Empire to come. That episode will be up October 15th. Since HI101's format can result in some factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections I post for each show there. That's hi101.ca. If there are any errors I haven't addressed on there, please let me know and I'll add them to the notes. You can also reach me on Facebook at facebook.com slash hi101podcast, on Twitter at hi101podcast, or by email at contact at hi101.ca. It doesn't just have to be about corrections. I look forward to hearing from listeners for any reason and respond when I can. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your attention, you should start looking for more information yourself. No matter how much you enjoy the show, I promise you'll find even more good stuff out there. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101. Thank you.